Wasn't sure which one was Robbie and which one was Josh playing over there. That's some good progress. Well, as Kevin mentioned, we did enjoy a celebration of retirement last night. Dr. Wine, after how many years of uh, 38, 38 years of dealing with sick people. Wow, that deserves a party right there. So retirement is when you can do absolutely nothing and you don't have to worry about being caught doing it, right? I once, I once uh, read a quote. Um, it said, a husband's retirement is a wife's full-time job. <laughs> so we will see about that. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 12 this morning and we have a lot to cover. So I'm going to uh, make my way right to it. And... Um, Matthew chapter 12, I have entitled it, It's Not You, It's Me. Of course, I'm taking that from our modern day breakup line where one individual tells the other in the relationship, I just want you to know it's not working, but it's not working because I'm the one that's broken. I'm the one that's not pulling my weight. I can't get my act together, and I don't want you to carry that burden or feel responsible. It's not you, it's me. And really, in this chapter, that's what's happening Um, in this relationship between the Pharisees and Jesus, things are really getting heated up. It's not on Jesus's end. It's on the Pharisees end. And they they're they're becoming so hardened and so bitter that no matter what Jesus does or no matter what Jesus doesn't do, it just isn't right. And so in this chapter, it is one accusation after another. And there's a lot of um, strange things and strange sayings that we have to wrestle with and teachings that we have to wrestle with, but it helps us to understand the context of this, and that is the accusations of the Pharisees. And rather just humbling, rather than humbling their hearts and saying, you know, Jesus, it's not you, it's me, they just continue time after time to harden their hearts against him. So in part one, this is part two, but in part one, the early verses, we saw they accused the disciples of eating little um, heads of grain on the Sabbath. They jumped on him for that. They jumped on Jesus for breaking the law of the Sabbath because he healed a man on the Sabbath. And according to them, you were not allowed to do that. And uh, I can't say that Jesus was sarcastic, but it kind of oozes out of me. And in essence, Jesus said, I wrote the law. I know what it means, I know how to apply it, and you most certainly can do acts of mercy on the Sabbath day. That wasn't good enough for them. But even though he is the lowly and gentle servant, as prophesied by Isaiah, their hatred towards him is seething, and they are murdering him in their hearts. So let's continue with these challenging teachings from Jesus and these altercations where the Pharisees just hit him with one accusation after another. And we're going to look at that confusing passage about the unpardonable or unforgivable sin. Is there really such a thing? Is there a limit to the forgiveness and the blood of Christ? And then also that uh, curious passage about Demons leaving, but then bringing seven back that are even worse than the original. What do we do with these passages? Let's look at verse 22. 
begin there in Matthew 12. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons and the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Is there a limit to the atoning blood of Christ? What does Jesus mean by the unforgivable or unpardonable sin? And it seems a little bit of a contradiction because he says this person will be forgiven of blasphemy and sin, but this person will not. Well, in this context, again, Jesus has done something good. He has healed a man that was mute, a man that was blind, a man that had been possessed by a demon. And we learned previously that demon possession can alter your physiology. It can wreak havoc with your, your physical abilities. Jesus is working his miracles within the boundaries of Scripture. Matthew teaches us that. And that's why he is always quoting Old Testament Scripture. He's showing that the way Jesus is manifesting his power is right in line with the way it was prophesied. So Jesus doesn't use his supernatural powers like I would use them if I had them. I guarantee you that. He is very self-controlled. And he is using them exactly as described. And so he is doing good. And he's healing people. And we also learned previously from Matthew that no matter what this world throws at us, there's nothing that Jesus cannot have victory over. And so already we've seen that he has power over natural calamities and sickness. And we've seen that he has power over demons. And we've seen that he has the power to forgive sin. And so Matthew brings us great hope, even in this passage, that Jesus can do such good when we often feel the most hopeless and helpless. No matter what it is, no matter what this world throws at us, no matter how heinous, Jesus has the power and the ability to make it right and to undo the curse. And so he is performing miracles and he's speaking like no man has ever spoken before. And there some are witnessing this and those that know their Bibles well are beginning to connect the dots and put the pieces of the puzzle together. And after seeing this miracle, they're asking themselves, can this be the son of David? 
Is this the one that Scripture promises us, promises us will come? And then you have, on the other hand, the Jewish leaders who do know their Bibles are, or are supposed to know their Bibles. And yet their response is exactly opposite. And everything that Jesus does good, they call wicked or evil. Or if he doesn't do something, he's wrong about that. So Jesus literally cannot do anything. Even the obvious is right before him. But their hearts are so hard. They're so proud. They're so rebellious. They're so self-righteous. That even when the very obvious is right before their very eyes, they cannot see it. They see just the opposite. And so... They throw accusations. And here is their accusation in the beginning of this text. They say, yeah, I grant you this, he cast out a demon. That's true. But he did it because he is employed by Satan. Satan gave him the power to do it. They're in some kind of cahoots, some kind of relationship. And what he did was actually... In relation to evil. And again, forgive me if sarcasm leaks out of me. I can't say that Jesus speaks like this. But it just is so obvious in this passage. So Jesus answers them in two basic ways. First of all, he says, your logic and your reason makes no sense. It's not how anything works in life or in the world. Why would Satan, why would the devil want to cast his demons out of people when his job description and his heart's desire is to put his demons into people? And he works very hard to possess and and to bring evil wherever he can to, to maim and destroy and to kill. Why would he take his soldiers or his servants or his demons out of a heart that he wants to bring chaos in so that that heart can experience peace. Why would he destroy his own work? Anybody that destroys their own work, why would the boss send the workers home early? Anybody that destroys his own work is dividing his own house. It just does not work that way. And second, he says to the Pharisees, You are inconsistent. Now think about it. Your disciples, your sons, those that sit under your teaching, they go out and they have an exorcism. They cast out demons and you say, ha, behold a work of God. And I go out and I do the exact same thing. And you say, behold, that's a work of the devil. So how can your disciples do it? And it be good. And I do it. And it be evil. Something is wrong with this picture. Their conclusions don't line up with reality. It does not line up with logic. And obviously Jesus is patient to bring this to their attention. He doesn't have to. He's teaching them. He's trying to shepherd their hearts. He's trying to lead them to the truth so that they can be set free from the blindness that their sin has caused. The fact of the matter, Jesus in essence is saying, I am the king. And you just don't want to admit it. 
The obvious is right before you and you refuse it. And here's really what's happening right here. I came down from heaven. I came right into Satan's turf. I'm in Satan's backyard and I went to battle and I handed him his teeth. I plundered him. He has a home court advantage. He has everything going for for him. And I come in and completely make haste and have a victory. I overpower him. I tie him up and I undo the evil that he is doing. And based on this reality and this common sense way of looking at things, he says, and that's why there's no neutral ground in the kingdom of heaven. You are either for me or against me because good is real and evil is real. And you're working for one or the other because otherwise the kingdoms couldn't exist. A house would be divided against itself. So when it comes to Christ, he says to these hard hearted Pharisees, you're either for me, all for me, all in. And if you're not all in, you're against me. And that goes for all of us. The same message for all of us. The gospel hasn't changed. The message hasn't changed. Christ demands our total loyalty and our allegiance all of our heart. Everything that we have, we need to believe in him and live for him and give our lives to him. Because if we're not for him, we are opposing him. And what will we do with this Jesus? We have to decide the same things they did based on the same works. Is he evil? Is he an imposter? Or is he good? And if he is good, and that's what we believe, then we are to place our faith in him. Where are we this morning? The fact that we are either or for or against Jesus helps us with this section is difficult about blasphemy. In verse 31, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Either in this age or in the age to come. We want to get this right because I believe it's been misinterpreted many, many times. Remember that there is tremendous tension building between the Pharisees and Jesus. And so there's one altercation after another. And it's spoken in this context with those people in mind. Jesus is reading their hearts. Remember, he knows what they're thinking. And so he is addressing that specific issue. And we know from absolutely countless Bible verses that God is a forgiving God. He forgives. He forgives. His grace is bigger than sin. And all the way, beginning in Genesis with Adam and Eve, his grace and forgiveness for the most heinous, rebellious crimes and transgressions Forgiveness is granted, was granted to David for his adultery and his murder, was granted to Matthew, the tax collector, the national traitor. He is forgiven and countless others. And even Jesus says in his own words in this passage, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. God is a proven, merciful God. But he is speaking directly to a people who are directly and adamantly and aggressively opposed to him. They are not giving him any recognition. 
any consideration that he may be who he actually says he is. Even in spite of all the supernatural miracles. And that's why Jesus uses these two words in this passage, blasphemy and sin, because blasphemy is to be against. It's to speak against something. And of course, sin is to, to transgress. And so these Pharisees, they're speaking against him. Now, all of us to one degree are guilty of blasphemy in the sense we've mocked him. We've refused to believe in him. We've refused to to recognize his kingship and his absolute authority and rule or reign. So to some degree, we have we have defamed him. We've been against him. And forgiveness has been offered. I think of even his disciple, Peter, who denied him three times. Three opportunities to be brave and courageous, as he said he would be. Not much of a prophet. And he failed. I think of even the Apostle Paul, who in 1 Timothy 4, literally calls himself, I was a blasphemer. I slandered Christ. I spoke against him. I persecuted his people, the church. He acknowledges that. And both of them were forgiven. So what is going on here? How can you go in and out of forgiveness and unforgiveness? Again, the context. So the Pharisees are rejecting all of the advances of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's job uh, description is to convict the heart. The Holy Spirit gets in there. If you're a believer, you'll know this. And if you've ever experienced any conviction... It is an undeniable sensation and reality when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and he begins speaking truth to your mind and showing you where you've gone wrong and how it ought to be. And he begins to open your eyes to the things of God. And that's what the spirit is doing in this world, even as I speak. And that's what he will continue to do until even so come Lord Jesus. He comes back. The Holy Spirit is at work when Jesus is ministering. And the Pharisees are refusing every invitation, every little inward prompting, outward prompting, all of the the tools of the kingdom of heaven that transform a heart. They are stubbornly and proudly rejecting. And so denial after denial, refusal after refusal to embrace Christ has an effect on the heart. And what it does is it causes our heart to get harder and harder and harder and our hearing to get duller and duller and our eyes to get blinder and blinder. And that's why Jesus often says of the Pharisees, you're the blind leading the blind. You don't have any idea where you're going. And this is a result of rejection. Rejecting the truth of the gospel, rejecting Jesus Christ. The Son of God. It has an effect. And so Jesus opens this, the possibility, the reality that a heart can harden through a series of denials to the point of one final denial. He's rejected the Holy Spirit so many times there is absolutely no interest whatsoever in the things of heaven. And it can become a permanent condition. I remember, maybe your parents did this, but um, I don't hear parents say it anymore. But um, 
you know, as a kid, it was real funny, and you'd go cross-eyed, and you'd laugh at each other, and who could do it the best? And my parents would always say, don't, don't go cross-eyed. Your eyes might stick like that. It was a threat for some reason. I don't know if there's any substantiation to it. But anyway, there's a sense where Jesus is saying, don't continue to reject. Don't continue to harden because your heart may stick like that. Commentator Hendrickson says, for penitence, they substitute hardening. For confession, plotting. Thus, by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness, they are dooming themselves. Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, an adulterer, and a murderer, there is hope. The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, cry out, O oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But when a man has become hardened so that he has made up his mind not to pay any attention to the promptings of the spirit, not even to listen to his pleading and warning voice, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. He has sinned the sin unto death. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, Three, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. To reject the Son is to reject the Spirit. To reject the Spirit is to reject the Son. Therefore, with this understanding, we want to be careful about accusing people of having the unpardonable sin because we don't know people's hearts like Jesus knows. Or perhaps you may have been wondering through the years, Am I shut out of heaven because I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Because I said something wrong against Christ? And I would say that if you are even thinking about that, there's still hope for your heart because there's still a sensitivity. You care about where you stand with God. And I also want to just say in light of this teaching of the Holy Spirit and the power and the job description that the Trinity, He has within the Trinity, whatever the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart, Listen to him and obey. Whether it's a call for salvation and you know that you're really not in right standing with God. Bow the knee and humble yourself. Soften your heart. You will not be disappointed with the merciful God dwelling within you. But even for those of us that have been saved, that are sanctified and in this process, when the Spirit prompts, when the Spirit speaks, whether it's in your marriage, relationship, something in the work, your schoolwork, all of the driving down the road, whatever it is, all of these very practical things of life, God speaks to you through His Spirit, confirming the truth of His Word. Obey the promptings of the Spirit. God wants to bring us to a certain place in His kingdom, even while we are here on this earth. So in light of this, Jesus offers a summary kind of everything that's taken place. It's very familiar to us about the tree. And he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. So now you know what Jesus has been thinking this whole time. Through all of these accusations. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. 
or by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. So here Jesus is not beating around the bush at all. He calls it just like he sees it. And he sees a group of people that on the outside think they're clean. And they spend much of their lives looking good, keeping up that appearance of moral uprightness when their hearts are wicked. Inside, they're thinking one thing, and yet outside, they're being all pleasant. And he's calling them on it. It's a contradiction. You can't keep the act up. And Jesus sees right through it. In reality, in order to live with integrity, our words and our heart need to be in perfect harmony so that we mean what we say, say what we mean, and we feel it. So when it comes to Christ, these two things also need to line up. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 10, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ has risen from the dead. So we confess the good things, but we also have to back it up with what we truly believe in the Pharisees. They were the whitewashed walls. Inconceivable evil was going on behind the scenes in their hearts. And yet they presented themselves as the role model for what it means to be morally upright. There is something wrong with that picture. And God in His grace calls them to face it. The real teaching, of course, in this entire passage is that Jesus is the King. He is the king. Matthew's been saying that the whole time. And they refuse it. And they reject it. See him as evil instead of divine. And so he promises them the wrath and the judgment for their decisions. The rest of this passage, it it, it doesn't get worse. But it doesn't get much better. He talks about when people seek signs. 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. They want a sign. If you ever wanted a sign, as confirmation. All the things that Jesus has done to this point have not been sufficient. All the miracles that they witnessed or that they heard about were not sufficient. It did not move or budge their hearts. And in essence, they're saying, well, give us something that will budge my heart. Give me something that will convince me. Because so far, so far I am not at all convinced. So far, you're nothing but my enemy. And Jesus sums it up by saying, I will give you one sign. Now, he's already given them lots of signs. But I'll give you one sign as the the ultimate sign to cause people to believe that I am the king. 
And he refers back to Jonah, Corky's old friend Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And he walked out of it and he lived to talk about it. And then he preached the gospel. And Jesus says, I will be under the ground for three days and three nights, but I will walk out and I will live to talk about it with the resurrection. That's the sign. The problem here is not that they need a better sign or a bigger sign. The signs already, as we know, even that sign did not change every heart, especially that of the Pharisees. The problem isn't that we need a bigger sign. The problem is our hearts. We need a humble heart. Because even what else can the kingdom of heaven bring to the earth as proof of the Messiah. The problem isn't what God has been doing or what heaven has been busy doing. The problem is what our hearts have been busy doing, and that is rebelling against God. And when we do that, we harden ourselves to the things of the kingdom. And what an indictment for Christ to say, you know, you, you look back and you hear about the Ninevites and how brutal they were and how ruthless they were and all the false gods they believe in. And yet I sent one man to preach to them, to all those pagans, and they were in sackcloth and ashes. And your heart and the hearts of this generation are so wicked that here I am in the flesh performing miracles and saying exactly and doing exactly as I said I would. And you are not even moved. I hope that our generation is not like that. I hope that we're not hardening our hearts to the things of God. Because they're just as real and powerful as they always are. And if there's a problem, it's not because God needs to be more powerful. He's omnipotent. The problem is right here. In our own hearts. I don't know what God is doing in your life. But the Spirit of God is revealing Himself to you. Acquiesce. Embrace Him. He is a good, good God. And Jesus isn't finished with these accusations. While we're talking about the evilness of man, another story pops up. So here's how Jesus is going to describe them in verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with the evil generation. Just so we're understanding this, I've, I've heard countless teachings on demonology using this passage. It's not a teaching on demonology. It's a teaching on the hearts of the Pharisees. We just have to be careful, keep the context in light here. A story about an unclean spirit and a whole generation being judged or accused of being evil and wicked. What is Jesus trying to teach? Well, he's talking again to the Pharisees. And what do we know about the Pharisees? They love to present themselves as squeaky clean on the inside while they are breaking all ten of the commandments on the inside. 
And so what they're doing is they're keeping their house in order. They're, they're ne- making it nice and clean. And he's talking about the external. He's talking about the way they present themselves. They dress right and they have misunderstood and, misunder- and misapplied the laws of God in such a way that they can make it look like they're actually keeping them to a T and therefore they are righteous before God. But Christ is not in there. God's grace is not in there. Their hearts have not been transformed. So by looking clean on the outside, keeping their house in order, the demon that was in there, for whatever reason, leaves, brings back seven more. The teaching is that the self-righteousness and worth, um, self-righteousness and legalism, works righteousness, damns you. It opens your heart when you think that you're in right standing with God by your works. You're opening yourself up to demon oppression. The Holy Spirit of God is not in your heart. That's the difference. They're looking clean on the outside when really they just have a welcome mat. Open for business, Satan. Me and my legalism and my works righteousness. Legalism Damns people. Legalism, it's a false teaching. It's demonic. And Jesus calls them on this. Only Christ can take our dirty stains away. We cannot reform or transform our own hearts. Only Christ can do that. By grace, through faith, in Christ alone. But at least we can end on a good note. After this tension, you feel the tension. I feel the tension in this scene here between the Pharisees and Christ. But let's end it in verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Let me just say this is not a slam against family. God designed the family. The family is a beautiful thing. It serves important uh, purpose in the kingdom of God. And even when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he speaks tenderly to his mother to make sure that she is cared for. He is not undermining the existing institution, the family. What he is doing is he is opening our our eyes to the beauty of the spiritual family in the kingdom of God. I have my earthly family and things work in a certain way with an earthly institution. But waving his hand, you are my brothers and sisters. You that believe in me, you that obey me, you are in the spiritual family. It's an incredible invitation, an incredible invitation sign of hope and joy. And we have our priorities. Jesus teaches, don't ever let the family get in the way of your relationship with Christ because that's not what it was designed for. Christ first. But as Christ is first, you are welcome into the family of heaven. And He transforms us from the inside out. He warms us. He reveals His love to us. He lays his path out for us and his truths for us. And he just shepherds our hearts like only the great shepherd can. He 
He knows every hurt. He knows every pain. He knows every anxiety. And within the Trinity, we have God as the good, good father. And we have Jesus as a good, good brother who is in no way ashamed to call us brothers. We have God, the Holy Spirit, who is our counselor and our comforter. All of this kind of care and intimacy in the kingdom of God and the family of God. It's a privilege and an honor and a blessing to be in the family of God. We will not regret it. I want to close with a summary of this passage from David Platt. For all who have worked hard to be righteous, rest in the Lord of the Sabbath, who is righteous. To all who are bruised and broken, whose light is struggling to find life, humble yourself before the one who brings hope to the hurting and ask him to heal you. To all who are struggling under the weight of sin, come to the one who is the power of God, to the one who is stronger than your enemy. To all who fear death, come to the greater prophet who conquers death. To all who seek wisdom, come to the only wise king. And to all who long to be loved, come to your elder brother who brings you into the family where God is father. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.